This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to Adam Rosenzweig. Adam is a partner of Gehring and Rosenzweig Natural Resource Investors. I talked to Adam last year on this podcast, and the work he and his firm has done on the shale industry is second to none. So now that we have this dispute between Russia and Saudi Arabia, Adam is back to give us his perspective on the subject. So Adam, welcome to this program. It's a pleasure to have you here and talk to you again. Well, thank you so much for, for having me back and certainly a very different world than, than the one when we last spoke. <laughs> Completely. So um, Adam, uh, before we start our conversation, could you please tell us about the work Gehring and Rosenzweig have done on the oil markets, specifically on the shale industry? Sure. So at Gehring and Rosenzweig, uh, we're natural resource equity investors. Uh, we have a variety of um, different vehicles for, for both U.S.-based clients as well as separate accounts and that sort of thing. But we are focused 100% exclusively on natural resource investments. So that would be across the board, whether energy, materials, uh, shipping, uranium, all, all the different facets of the natural resource markets. And we base most of our investment decisions on what I think is some very original uh, and very deep original research. And the way that our research process starts is we try to look at the different commodity sectors sort of one by one. And first and foremost, before we even start talking about companies uh, at our firm, we like to get a good sense of the macro uh, environment and of the different forces at play at the commodity supply and demand level. So in the case of the oil markets, before the COVID virus and before the recent talks of, of OPEC here and OPEC Plus, which I'm happy to get into and, and talk for as long as you want, but through most of 2000. 2019, the trend that we thought was the most important in the global oil markets consisted of what we saw happening in the U.S. shales. And notably, we had created a model, um, and, and for those that are interested, it was a, actually a neural network model that tried to look at the different drivers drilling productivity. So that is to say, uh, we all know that in the last few years, every well that's been drilled in the shale place in the United States, on average, has gotten more productive. What we haven't been able to properly answer has been why. Uh, there had been a large uh, school of thought that said it was because we were getting better and better at drilling these wells. And then another school of thought that said that perhaps we might be running out of the best drilling locations and that might have an impact going forward. What our model told us was something a little bit different. Namely, we, we determined, uh, in our opinion, that the drilling efficiency, so how you drilled these wells, was actually not having that much of an impact. And instead, what the industry had done over the last five years had really focused in on its best area. So it high graded. It only drilled its best wells. And the reason that was so important to us was that we felt that going forward, uh, basically, we were running out of these top tier wells. And what the uh, conventional wisdom had been, namely that we are now able as an industry to turn tier two or less high quality wells into good quality tier one wells actually wasn't true. And if that if that's the case, if all that we'd been doing been drilling these tier one wells more and more aggressively, and we were not getting any better at drilling, uh, turning tier two into tier one, then the implication is that at some point in the future, and we felt sooner rather than later, we would start to run out. Uh, and so that, that was really the most important story that we uh, believed what was taking place throughout 2019. 
And one of the things that was fascinating about that is that shale production into the end of last year actually began to fall, which was not something most people expected. No, not at all. I, I find this work, uh, the, the neural network you guys have done fascinating. Congratulations. Now, uh, let's go right to it. Um, currently, there's been a lot of activity in the oil market. So Russia has cooperated with OPEC until recently, but uh, apparently this has already come to an end as of this month. Uh, OPEC has uh, apparently agreed to, to cut one and a half million barrels a day, but Russia didn't want to do its part. So the whole deal was called off. And not only that, but Saudi Arabia decided to open the spigots and not only go back to what it was producing before the previous cut, but also to increase production and probably to sell some of its uh, inventory as well. As a consequence, oil prices collapsed. So uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, can you tell us what to expect to be the dynamics between Russia and Saudi Arabia and how long you expect this price war to go for? Well, they're all very interesting questions and ultimately quite difficult to answer. Um, certainly the events of the last three weeks, it's amazing to think it's only been three weeks, you know, have been unlike anything we've seen before. Uh, I think that for most people, the impact of the coronavirus coronavirus alone is probably, um, you know, the biggest uh, black swan event in most of their investment careers. And then to layer on top of that, an unpredicted OPEC price war is just sort of like layering on two unlikely events on top of each other. So I think the first thing is to really understand how how unique this time really has been. The impacts uh, between OPEC or between Saudi Arabia and Russia, I think are very, very difficult, you know, as, as often some of these geopolitical events are. Uh, but one thing that 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 is notable is that if you really sort of think about the different pros and cons or, or strengths and weaknesses of the two parties I think that Russia is probably on more solid footing, uh, at least today, uh, than, than Saudi Arabia is. And the reason for that is a fewfold. Uh, first of all, Russia has a tool in its toolkit uh, that, that simply Saudi Arabia does not have, and that has to do with their currency. So in the past, historically, uh, during periods of low oil prices, the Russian ruble has devalued quite sharply. And basically what that does is that means that the revenues that they sell their oil in uh, obviously are denominated on a global basis in U.S. dollars. Uh, but their costs, since they do have a large domestic oil service industry, all of their costs for drilling and oil field services are all denominated in rubles. And so the costs devalue relative to the revenue and, and the oil companies are, are able to, to make profits even at lower and lower prices. Now, obviously, that's done on the back of the Russian population who now suffers a devalued currency and has you know more difficulty importing goods and things of that nature. Uh, but that is sort of something that we've seen happen. So back in 2016, uh, the ruble dollar uh, exchange rate got up to 85. Recently, it was as low as in 2018 as 55. And now, you know, it's back up into in, at 80 again. And so I think you're starting to see that already. And that's just a tool or a lever that the Russians can pull uh, to help them withstand lower prices. On the flip side, Saudi Arabia doesn't have that to speak of. And so, uh, you know, the, these lower prices go directly to their to their bottom line. Um, the next thing is that, you know, following the 2016 price war, which when I say 16, it's actually started in 2014, uh, Thanksgiving to 2014, where Saudi Arabia, again, gave up its role as Swiss producer um, in an attempt to, different people will say, either punish Iran or punish the U.S. shale industry. Saudi 
Saudi blew through quite a, a large number of its foreign exchange reserves at that time, about 30 uh, percent, which is a very, very uh, substantial, particularly the rate of change was quite, quite substantial. Uh, they've not been able to really boost those foreign exchange reserves back up in the, in the previous three years. And so now they find themselves in a, in a situation where they're already starting from, from a lower level of financial or FX reserves. And so to the extent that their oil, uh, total net oil revenue uh, doesn't balance their budget, you know, they, they run the risk of seeing those reserves decrease even even further. And, you know, by all intents and purposes, Saudi Arabia basically needs 80 to $85 a barrel to balance its budget. Uh, and, and remember that obviously the US, uh, the oil uh, industry in Saudi Arabia pays for a huge amount uh, of various programs in the country. So it's very, very, very important. So in that regard, also, they find themselves uh, a little bit more under the gun by my estimation. But again, you know, it's very, very difficult to tell. Uh, obviously, the regime uh, of Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia is very adamant uh, that they not lose face through this war, uh, price war. And so, you know, I, I have a hard time seeing either Russia or uh, Saudi Arabia um, coming back to the table uh, in any short period of time. But, you know, difficult to say. But uh, this price war should cause an increase in inventories globally. Do you think this increase might delay the recovery of the oil price when it happens? Well, you know, I think that's what that's what's interesting. And and for people, you know, who who would like to hear more, we actually did a, a webinar that's the replay of which will be posted on our website, if not today, I believe tomorrow. And, and we go into quite a bit detail about all of the supply and demand dynamics. But really, you know, right now you have huge, huge, huge uh, developments taking place both on supply and demand. On the demand side of things, obviously, everything that we're talking about today it has to do with the coronavirus and the impacted demand of that. Um, by all estimations, that seems like it's going to be quite severe uh, from peak to trough, although the big question remains how long it lasts at those severe levels. There are some signs, you know, today it's March 23rd. There are some signs at this point that uh, things are getting back to normal somewhat in China. Uh, perhaps, you know, if the world uh, ends up following that trajectory, it could be uh, a little bit shorter than some people are thinking, but obviously it, you're going to see a big impact on demand. Now, I would like to point out, as of right now, as of the 23rd, we've not actually seen any impact on global oil demand. I can't imagine that that's true. I, I think that the data is just working with a little bit of a lag, uh, but that is a very weird quirk that's happening right now that I don't think people appreciate. When you look at the U.S. inventory data, they're still showing okay, and we have not yet seen a big indication. Now, like I said, I think that that will come, but as of today, it hasn't. On the supply side, you have two things moving in opposite directions, and they're very, very large forces. Uh, the first is obviously the price war that we talked about between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Um, there's indications that Russia could quite easily take production up about five or 600,000 barrels a day in the next few months. And as far as Saudi Arabia goes, that's a little bit more of an open question. But um, you, you alluded to it before. Uh, I think anything that they're not able to actually increase from the field level, they're going to sell out of inventory. So I think there's the chance there uh, that the threats of, of the Saudi numbers that they're putting out are, are reasonable, at least in the short term. But on the other hand, and this is what I think is so important, and the reason this is so important is that no matter how bad uh, the coronavirus gets, and I don't mean to minimize the impacts at all because they're quite substantial, they will be in retrospect limited to some amount of time. They are sort of the definition, I guess, of a very severe but of a one-time in nature uh, event. And particularly uh, if the damage from the coronavirus can be contained and not spread to the broader financial system and the banking system and things like that, which is why I think that the central bank actions have been so important. So when we look forward in, in one, two, three 
four years, you know, the idea of the coronavirus will have been this sort of moment in time event, very, very substantial, huge implications, but ultimately something we likely get through from the price war that might last to the end of the year that might last into next year. Uh, however, there is a finite sort of cap in terms of excess production that uh, Saudi and Russia can produce before a huge amount of new investments required. But the thing that we will be talking about for the next five to 10 years will be these shales, because these shales are now we went into this price war with declining production. We've never had that before. You know, back in 2014, shale production grew for another year after the price war started. Today, production was falling before the price war, and now it is set to just fall off a cliff. Uh, we have seen capital expenditure cutbacks of between 40 and 60% in the companies that we're looking at. And not only that, but they're happening really, really, really fast. And so, you know, if you look back to 2014, in some cases, it took weeks, if not months, to get formal responses from these companies about how they would lay down rigs. Now we're seeing it in a matter of days. Some companies actually were two weeks in. Some companies have come back twice to announce even further cutbacks. Um, and simply put, given the fact that the shales are more geologically exhausted today than they were in 2014, the drop off is going to be that much more dramatic. You know, we are drilling, like we mentioned earlier, we're drilling 80 percent of these wells or these top tier one wells. We've high graded in the best areas. So when you start to lay down rigs in those best areas, they're going to make that much more of an impact. That's what we saw in 2019. That's why production was declining already. And now it's just set to the numbers can be really staggering. So what we see for balances throughout this year. Uh, we see a, a definite oversupply today. There's no toys about that. Um, the numbers could get ugly. It will be critical to see how long demand is deferred or, or destroyed for. Uh, you know, if it's a quarter, uh, that would be great. If it's two quarters, okay, more than that, and, and numbers start to get scary. But when they snap back the other way, and that's what's going to surprise people, they will snap back very, very quickly and very substantially because of all the lost shale production. And certainly by this time next year, if not in the fourth quarter, the oil market might actually be in deficit again, and inventories might be drawing quite quite quickly around the world. And I don't think anyone right now, I don't think anyone is, is expecting that. And so I think what you have to look for are names that can weather the storm as best as possible. Sure. But uh, the world needs shale, Adam. Um, if, if oil price remain that low for too long, shale will, will not be competitive, as you said. And, uh, and if you remove 12 million or something like that barrels a day from the equation, we're going to have problems. Uh, Saudi Arabia, Russia and others will not be able to, to plug the gap, the gap left by shale. I think that's exactly right. And I think that the there's a risk now that the move higher, uh, when, when we do sort of pass the, the worst of this, the move higher could be violently higher. And the reason is exactly what you said. If you look back in the last 10 years, global oil demand has grown by 13 million barrels a day. And 10 million of that has been met by the shales. You know, 3 million has been met by basically OPEC with the rest of non-OPEC basically flat over that time. So, you know, first of all, this this talk that, that the U.S. has sort of crowded out the rest of OPEC isn't 100% true. We've needed all the shales and we've needed an extra 3 million barrels a day from other sources. But now that 10 million barrels of the 13 million barrels in growth we've had over the last decade has been turned off. And it seems unlikely that you will have the robust growth almost ever, uh, given the fact that the fields are a little bit older, given the facts that you really needed to uh, make 
maintain drilling activity just to hold production even flat. You know, you saw last year, oil was almost averaged almost $60 a barrel, and that basically still wasn't enough to keep the shales flat. The shales were beginning to decline by the end of the year. They did grow year on year, but by the end of the year, they had rolled over and were declining. So, you know, the, the idea here that the world can can make it work without the shale is is completely wrong. You know, if you add you know, 2 million barrels a day between Russia and Saudi Arabia at the same time as you, on a short-term basis, destroy several million barrels a day of demand, which is some of the most worst estimates we've heard, there's no two ways that you will have an oversupplied surplus market. But coming out of that, there's no way to meet demand with supply if you don't have the shales. Uh, and so the question is going to be what attracts capital back into that? Because as of right now, um, you know, it, be, it seems very, very, very difficult to see capital going into the shale basins. And once you sort of stop that treadmill, it's going to be very difficult to restart it. Just look at the Eagleford. You know, the Eagleford was the most exhausted play going into the 2014 to 2016 downturn. And when we came out of that, oil prices rebounded. You know, Brent got to 87 again by 2018. People forget that. Uh, But the Eagleford never was able to make a new high. It was able to grow a little bit again, but it was never able to make a new high. That's what I think we're at risk now for the whole of the shales. And that has a huge implication for global oil demand. global oil balances, um, you know, looking forward, like I said, basically the next decade, once we get through some of these bigger uncertainties in the short term. Absolutely. I agree with you. Now, uh, the, the term structure of the oil market has changed again. So oil is trading at a contango now. Do you see this term structure going back to backwardation soon? I think it's difficult to see it going back into a backwardation soon, given the fact that we likely will have quite a bit of physical oil in the system, uh, both uh, due to a curtailment of demand, which it's true might be shorter than people think, but still, I mean, obviously demand is being impacted here. Uh, and, you know, the risk of new supply coming on, at least in the short term, from the sources that we talked about. So I think there's probably going to be a well-supplied physical market in, in the, for the next few months, at the very, very least, before we start working off those inventories. So I, I would expect to see the contango remain high. Now, you know, if, if for whatever reason, and, and for those listeners who, who are not as familiar, uh, you know, the contango or backwardation or term structure uh, refers to what the future price of oil uh, trades for versus the current spot price. And in a normal market where there's lots of um, available physical supply, future prices ought to trade at a premium to spot prices, reflecting the time value of money and the storage costs to keep that crude for a period of time for future delivery. In periods, uh, on the other hand, where there's a physical shortage, what actually happens is the future price of oil becomes lower than the current price, which is a counterintuitive. But the idea is that traders are willing to pay a physical premium for the actual physical barrel today as opposed to the paper barrel in the future. That tends to happen when the physical market is tight. Um, so as you as you might expect, uh, we are now in a situation where we are in contango, where there is ample supply and future prices are uh, substantially higher than current prices. So for WTI, the 12-month contango right now is over $10 a barrel. And what I mean by that is the current spot price is $23.50, but oil for delivery 
every year from now is trading at 3370, uh, and that's likely a function uh, of the expected re- um, the expected storage costs to store that oil for the next 12 months. So as inventories remain or get higher, which like I said, we haven't seen them move higher yet. So a lot of this is is anticipatory. But as that physical volume comes in, uh, I do think that the cost of store goes up, and so the contango is probably justified. If for whatever reason that were to come down again, that would be a signal that maybe these physical barrels, for whatever reason, are not in the market, which, which would be very, very, very bullish. But but as of now, I would expect that contango to probably remain for the foreseeable future. Sure. Yeah, that's good for for traders and and also for VLCCs that are achieving new highs. Yes, and and the other the other industry that I think is actually you know has been trading fairly well through this, and it's kind of been been interesting, but some of the natural gas names uh, have been doing uh, better than the oil names. And the idea there, although actually I take that back in the last two days, some of them have been very, very weak. But what's interesting uh, on a relative basis, they've definitely done better than the oil names. What's what's interesting there uh, is that, you know, you have basically uh, there's been two major sources of, of natural gas uh, supply in the U.S. The first has been the Marcellus, and the second has been a, what they call associated gas coming from uh, the Permian Basin. So that is to say, oil wells in the Permian Basin also produce gas, and in some cases they produce quite a lot of gas. And so that gas is uh, subject to different economic considerations because basically the oil price is what you're after, and the gas is almost a, a byproduct that is a second thought. With clearly lower production now expected in the Permian, as well as, surprisingly enough, the Marcellus, which has been a huge source of all the new supply in the last decade, unexpectedly rolled over beginning at the end of last year as well. Uh, there's a view that perhaps uh, supply the supply story in the gas markets are actually quite a bit nearer to an inflection point in the oil markets. So I think that's interesting to watch as well, something that, that we're doing quite a bit of work on right now. Cool. Now, uh, if we look at a few stocks, they have been obliterated by this movement they, they were not doing all that well before monday uh, the the beginning the beginning of march uh, probably the ninth or something but uh, this month has been a disaster for them i look at the xop the oil and gas exploration etf and it went down from 24 dollars in the beginning of the year to just over eight dollars now there was already a discrepancy in between oil prices and oil stocks but now this is becoming ridiculous what are your expectations for oil and oil stocks this year and and going forward again i think that you're right i think that the values of, of these companies it sort of seems strange to talk about you know values for names that are sometimes down 70 to 80 percent this year alone and like you said last year was not a good year for the oil stocks either but the truth of the matter is if you can pick names that will ultimately make it through the cycle the return potential is is quite dramatic and so you know what, what the other there's a few interesting things to note there you know i think balance sheets become very important again uh, some of these companies don't have the best balance sheets and, and i don't know that now is the time to be you know holding excess risk in in that way now by the same time by the same token those there are people that hold those names that have seen them go down you know potentially 90 to 95%. So is the right thing to do to sell them now? I don't know. Or do you just sort of keep them as a call option? But for names, you know, there are names that even under really, really dire oil price decks uh, probably emerge from this cycle at, you know, one to one and a half times debt to EBITDA. I think those names can be very, very attractive because uh, clearly uh, the market is is basically trading these 
companies as though they'll go away. And while I mentioned that, you know, the shales and even the Permian now uh, will all suffer substantial difficulty, you know, there are winners and losers. And so you can look at companies. And I don't think that anyone at today's oil prices can generate uh, a rate of return uh, in excess of their cost of capital. However, there's a huge discrepancy between the returns that people can generate, um, you know, some being much worse than others. Uh, and so I think if you own the assets with their companies with the higher quality assets that are fairly reasonably capitalized, you know, and the managements are able to do a halfway decent job of weathering this, I think the value opportunity there is quite dramatic. Uh, so that's what we're spending a lot of our time doing now is just, you know, checking the robustness of uh, some of our investments, making sure that we understand the capital structure uh, well, which frankly is something we try to do on a normal course of business basis anyway. Uh, but, you know, obviously want to make sure that, that you're du double checking all of those right now because there is a potential that capital is hard to come by for these companies and the likelihood of being able to make it through cash flow, at least in the short term, uh, might be difficult as well. So I think you have to do a lot of work there, but the, but the opportunities are like anything I can recall ever seeing. My partner, Lee, uh, not on this call, but he's been doing this since 1991. He, he doesn't really recall a situation quite like this either. So, you know, I think I think for those names that are right, that are positioned in the right ways, I think this can be a very, very, very interesting opportunity, the likes of which most investors don't get very often. No, I totally agree with you. Now, uh, Adam, you mentioned a while ago that you followed the gold oil ratio. And when this ratio gets below 10, it means that gold is undervalued. And when it gets above 30, it means that gold is overvalued in regards to oil. Now, uh, last week, this, this ratio achieved 53. What do you make of this? Yeah, so 53 is, is represents the, uh, it actually, the gold to oil ratio at its peak in this last cycle actually actually was up through 70. Um, <laughs> you know, I have it now. And, and I think the difference there is I, I look at the West Texas uh, price as opposed to the Brent. So, but you, I mean, un, unprecedented, again, uh, unfortunately, I feel like I, uh, you know, unprecedented is a term that you ought to use by definition, not very often. And I feel that I'm using it too much these days, uh, but it, it is. It is at an extreme level. And, you know, strictly speaking, just looking at that ratio would suggest that the better investment today is energy and energy probably related securities, given that they're trading at discounts even to the oil price. I think the most important decision for investors um, in the next in the next little while is going to be how how and when to increase their energy exposure. Uh, and, and as a full disclosure, we have uh, gold investments and we have oil investments by virtue of the price action in both uh, our relative weighting in our energy stocks have come down relative to our gold stocks. And you know that's because as, at the same time as all this is happening uh, on the oil side, everything we just talked about in the gold market, uh, you know, investors now face the prospect of, you know, unlimited QE, um, you know, massive coordinated federal central bank uh, actions taking place around the world, uh, you know, the likes of which, uh, again, you know, I'm challenged to remember a time that we have, or I know that we haven't had a time of, of the comparable level of liquidity, all of which should be good for the gold price. So, you know, you don't want to move too early. Obviously, gold has been a good insulator here in the last little bit from some of this market panic. We've been happy to have that exposure. When we look forward, though, the question is going to be, when do we bring that energy exposure back up to what historically would be a more full weight for us? And I think that's sort of a similar question that most investors are asking themselves. You know, when do we buy the oil stocks? When do we take things back who knows? It's really difficult to say. It's a little bit of art and a little bit of science. I think the answer 
years, you probably do it slowly uh, so that you're able to take advantage of some of the prices now. And then if things leg down, you're able to average into that and vice versa. If they move higher quickly, uh, you know, you say, well, I missed it a little bit, but but at least the world's looking better. Uh, but, you know, that's that's trying to come to terms with right now is exactly when because you're right when you look at the oil ratio gold has never been more expensive in the history of, of this ratio uh, compared to to energy and i should point out our ratios go back here um you know basically to to the first production of oil uh, when when you know colonel drake first hit oil in, in uh, appalachia and so you know you you can't necessarily dismiss that now at the same time you know i'm glad we didn't go out and sell all of our gold stocks and put them all into energy stocks you know last week uh, so i think you have to you maybe wait for the market to settle a little bit, wait for things to shake out, realize you might not be able to get it on exactly the bottom day. Uh, but ultimately, like I said, the big asset allocation question is going to be when do you bring up, when and how do you bring up your energy exposure uh, in the coming weeks and months? Now, another ratio I would like to discuss with you is the gold-silver ratio. Again, we are above 95 in this ratio, which indicates that gold might be overvalued in regards to silver. What are your expectations for gold and for silver going forward, especially with this infinite money printing that it's about to come? Well, I, listen, I think that certainly from a bigger picture, from a global monetary perspective, you know, the backdrop for gold is very, very positive right now. And so I wouldn't be, uh, you know, getting out of my gold names. I wouldn't be getting out of uh, gold in general. I think that that's uh, premature uh, and uncalled for given the amount of monetary stimulus and likely fiscal stimulus that's about to come. You know, I think in the last little bit, uh, gold has definitely had a safe haven trade here. Um, and I think that sort of explains why uh, certainly, you know, gold and oil are, are due to all the fundamental reasons we talked about, but gold and silver as well. You know, I think that this is typically in a gold bull market, a sustained gold bull market. Uh, silver does very, very well. And so that gold to silver ratio actually comes down. You know, I think what you're seeing now is a little bit more of a, of a safe haven trade, uh, which could set up for a very strong precious metal bull market. But, but you know, as of now, you're not necessarily seeing speculative forces driving the gold price higher here. Uh, you know, I think you're seeing more of a protection of capital type of a trade, uh, which which has which has um, you know helped it from going down the same as other assets. So I think silver is probably an interesting buy uh, as well. Silver silver securities, you know, it's harder to find silver predominantly silver companies. They are out there, but I think that what you're at risk of seeing, frankly. In the next cycle here is, as we've discussed in the past, if you look at the value of real assets to the value of paper assets, they were going into this at a 100-year low. So they were about as stretched as they get. And the question for us became, you know, what would change that regime? What would be a paradigm shift that would help re-rate real assets relative to nominal paper assets? And perhaps this uh, COVID virus, uh, ironically, could, could end up being just that. Um, so that's sort of what we're thinking, um, you know, obviously remains to be seen. But I do think that, that in this gold bull market uh, that we are now, you know, firmly basically in the second or third year of, I do think that uh, that silver will do very well also. And and like you said, it is just stretched as can be relative to gold. So I think there's a catch up to be done there too. Adam, I cannot let you go before we talk about uranium. This is a commodity in which uh, demand is increasing, supply is decreasing, the sector is already in deficits, and the price has not moved yet. I mean, the price of uranium is flat. It's probably the only commodity I know of whose price um, has been steady this year. Although uranium stocks have suffered, what are your expectations for uranium? And when do you see the end of this bear market for, for the commodity? Well, and first of all, I mean, I wish, you know, we do have some uh, positions in uranium stocks. I wish we had I wish we had more of them, uh, you know, from a commodity perspective, it's held in much better. Uh, you know, I think it's just a little bit outside of the fray, if you will, 
certainly of, of this whole uh, energy issues that's that's been happening. Um, and and it's just been it's just been on fewer people's minds, I think. Um, you know, we we before COVID, we believed that there was the risk of a pretty substantial price spike in physical uranium in 2020. The reason for that, I'm sure your listeners will all know. But you know, when Cameco and Kazataprom curtailed production back uh, two years ago, uh, it left Cameco in a position of being uh, exposed on on its long term commitments. They didn't have enough material, and they've been very transparent over over the quarters of saying, you know, they can either access the spot market or sell out of their own commercial inventories, and it's always been their preference to sell, uh, to buy in the spot market and not take down their inventories. And the reason for that is I think they, they view their inventories as necessary in the event of mine disruptions and things of that nature. Now, what's interesting is that their inventories, which they disclose on a quarterly basis, have come down dramatically. And that suggests two things. The first is that it suggests that Cameco has not really been able to find any volumes in the spot market. You know, if you believe that they were really out looking, which which we do, and all indications point that they were, um, they didn't seem to really be able to find any. Now that's very bullish in and of itself. Uh, now the next thing is that Cameco's inventories are now in a position where they won't be able to do that again this year. So they'll they'll basically run out. And so they'll have to go into the spot market. And so we think that that we thought that that ultimately could be the trigger to help put a little bit of a bid in the global spot market, which would then, you know, help firm up potential renegotiations of contracts, longer term contracts with the utilities as well. Uh, you know, frankly, how the virus uh, affects that is really difficult to, to say, um, you know, it depends if there end up being restructurings anywhere along in the utilities or anything like that. You know, we obviously haven't seen anything like that. But, you know, I, I think you have to be I can't imagine if you're a fuel buyer that you're looking right now to to enter into long term contracts, but maybe you are. I'm not really sure. So from a supply and demand perspective, you know, just looking at the physical mind supply, looking at the demand, there's certainly not enough. Last year that was bridged by Cameco selling its inventories. They can't do that to the same extent this year. And so we had thought and continue to hope that perhaps this could be the year that you finally see uh, a fairly sizable price response in the physical market. So, you know, we, we just we were at uh, the BMO Metals and Mining Conference down in Florida back in February. We met with all the uranium companies there and um, and, you know, our view on the on the larger dynamic, particularly on the supply side, has not changed. We think it's still very, very bullish looking forward with no material new uh, new mine production or anything like that coming on in the, in the foreseeable future. So I think that's a bullish market and we like that, too. Brilliant. Thank you. Now, as I normally do, I would like to recommend your newsletter to everyone listening to this podcast. And Adam, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. <laughs>